Welcome to Perspectives, a podcast from Zeit Contemporary Art, exploring art and its ideas. I'm your host, Samuel Shapiro. Throughout the 20th century, abstract painting often served as a device with which artists could open a door by closing one. In 1921, Alexander Rodchenko painted a triptych of monochromes titled Pure Color, Red, Yellow, Blue. Here's what he said about it. I reduced painting to its logical conclusion and exhibited three canvases, red, blue, and yellow. I affirmed, this is the end of painting. There will be no more representation. And on he went to work in the service of a socialist utopia. After the cataclysmic historical rupture of the Second World War, Jackson Pollock declared that, the modern painter cannot express this age, the airplane, the atom bomb, the radio, and the old forms of the Renaissance or of any other past culture. Closing the door on easel painting, he proceeded to fling skines of paint onto prone canvas. In the final quarter of the century, following the hegemony of abstract expressionism like Pollock's, artists turned abstraction on itself. Gerhard Richter claimed his version to be, quote, an assault on the falsity and the religiosity of the way people glorified abstraction with such phony reverence. He called abstraction devotional art and church handicrafts, thus closing the door on utopian aspiration and direct expression in order to open one onto the complex negotiation of history, form, and subjective experience that abstracted painters must perform to this day. Painting has emerged from these polemical positions with ongoing vitality and relevance. Artists now look for new ways forward, both seeking new doors and propping open a few doors that had been, supposedly, slammed shut. But what does it feel like, from their perspective, to work under the weight of this tradition? Which histories of abstract painting? For the potted one I just gave is certainly not the only version of the story. Should artists articulate today? What possibilities does the medium of painting and the mode of abstraction offer artists today that it didn't throughout the 20th century? And at a cultural moment in which everything from money to individual identity has been subjected to complex processes of abstraction, can abstract painting still claim to clarify the world around us in our relationship to it? Should it? To begin this conversation, I'm speaking today with two young abstract painters, Alteron Scumby and Julia Rooney. Gumby has degrees in painting from Hunter College and the Yale School of Art, and he's had residencies and solo exhibitions from New York to Paris. Rooney also attended the Yale School of Art after she completed her bachelor's at Harvard. She's exhibited at numerous galleries, has upcoming residencies at Mass Mocha and the Joan Mitchell Center, and has worked as an arts educator at the Solowit Archive in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. This episode, Our Conversation, is presented in conjunction with Zeit Contemporary Arts Viewing Room, Painting Abstraction, 1970X to Today, which runs online through March 31st. Alteron and Julia, welcome to Perspectives. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. So I began the introduction with Rodchenko's declaration of the end of painting. That was a century ago, and yet here you both are painting. Can I ask both of you to share a time when you were told that painting is dead, and how, how did you respond? I feel like that size says it all. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I was just thinking about the time I I read like um, paintings dead or the end of painting. It was it's really crazy to me that uh, people keep trying to kill painting, and I'm like, why? Like, let's kill something else, like racism or bigotry or or, or oppression or you know, uh, 
monopoly or capitalism or something. But um, of course, hearing or reading these things as a student um, in like a, a art theory class, I think in a way it was just to give myself and maybe my other um, cohort, you know, people in my cohort, just fuel for the fire to just um, in a way, find, find a way to like reinvent painting for ourselves and to try to, uh, uh, not even that it needed reviving, but in some way, um, make it fresh for us. I, I never really got like painting is dead or, you know, the end of painting because obviously, you know, later that day, someone made a painting, you know? <laughs> so it's like, are, are we serious? Like, come on. I, I, I respond to everything you said. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the sort of philosophy of whatever structured program you're in. Uh, and that's not just a school thing. I mean, that can be a group of your peers. That can be an institution that you're affiliated with. Uh, in my case, I would say undergrad, there was a pretty strong bent on conceptual work. And I think that had something to do with it being an academic space that language sort of needed to foreground everything. I think a painting, at least in my experience of making it is something that I discover as I'm doing it. And it often ends up in a pretty far away place from where I started. And that doesn't really fit very neatly within academic proposals, theses, um, hypotheses that are proved. And I, I came from a kind of academic environment where all of those things were sort of uh, privileged. So paintings really never fit neatly within that. And it was a struggle to sort of defend the alchemy that is making a painting. Hmm. Understanding that painting is clearly not dead, I, I still just wanna push on the experience of painting in the wake of the 20th century. To what extent if at all, does the tradition of abstract painting with its successive foreclosures of styles and techniques weigh on you? Do any practices seem invalidated to you or do you feel entitled to all of the tools in a painter's toolkit? I'll say, I think that there are certain narratives around how various schools of abstraction came about. I think there are certain narratives that do feel outdated to me. Um, and what I mean by that is not that the painters themselves are not relevant or that they're not you know, available for, uh, for us to participate in some way with, but I think that the art historians that perhaps created those narratives around that work, I think that art historians sometimes can place language almost preemptively on the work and that language sticks around, but that's maybe the thing that we have to start to think twice about. The paintings, I think they keep giving and giving and giving and giving. So it's really the, the history that I think has to be revised in some way. Um, yeah. I feel like as an art student, you should look at everything. I don't, I don't think you should neglect any movement, any artist. Um, any any genre, any geographical uh, movement. I mean, there there are many art worlds out there, and there are many art histories. And the the history that we are um, given in 
undergrad or graduate is from a very specific perspective. And I feel like um, it didn't hit me until actually I got to grad school and, and after that um, I started noticing that the art history that I was learning um, was never like the, was not the full scope was on the full perspective. You know, they they teach you about, you know, abstract expressionism and all these very maybe Eurocentric American um, related movements, but there were also um, abstraction happening in the Middle East. There was also abstraction happening in Africa. There is, you know, modernism uh, abstraction was also happening um, in Brazil and, you know, uh, Central America, uh, South America, um, Australia. So. I, um, you know, uh, Southeast Asia, I feel like all of these places um, yield some bit of history and are approaching um, maybe certain aesthetics and styles um, differently. I think as an artist, you have to decide what you want from that. What, what bits and pieces are you taking from that to bring into your own kind of uh, catalog or, um, you know, a, a, a aesthetic? or, or language and, and how is it used and developed in your own work? I just want to second that and, and to say that um, the academic model is, is often very limited by who you're with at this certain moment, who are your professors, who are the critics they're bringing in. And one of the things I really appreciated sometimes was students uh, calling upon other departments outside of the School of Art and I'm talking specifically about at Yale and, and having those voices in the room because they understand entire histories that, that are not necessarily part of the art school's uh, alphabet of you know, references, for instance. And in my own life, I've, I feel like I've learned as much from jobs that I've had working in museums and working in um, spaces outside of you know, my own studio and academia about, about references and sources as, as any place, you know? Um, so I, I, I totally agree about that, that idea that you should be looking at everything and that everything is sort of available as a source and as a, um, a form of research. Yeah, thank you both. I think that's actually really helpful and hopeful the ways that you both point out that there are more histories than we've previously explored that can be explored, and that even within the well-trodden histories, artworks can be recovered and new things can be seen in them, that we can keep looking towards Kenneth Nolan or Helen Frankenthaler outside of the context of Clement Breenberg, that their works give to us in new and different ways going forward. Do you feel that you have to commit to a particular approach or position when you're in your studio? Do you feel that you have to put forward one notion of your painting with a specific, specific philosophical parameter? Or do you feel that that position can be open and changing every day? I feel I am an abstract painter. I do know that. I do know I love abstract painting. And I do recognize that I'm engaging in the history of color-filled painting and monochromatic painting and maybe um, ab abstract expressionism um, and all these alternative mediums, but at, at the same time, I'm trying to create a space for myself to think and develop. I, I always say that I try to approach my uh, studio practice almost like a mad scientist. Like I know the rules, 
and I understand like I can put this with that and I'll get that. But what if I took this other thing and added it in? Um, and we, you know, what would I get? Would I create like a, a monster, a new monster, or would I create something that could be offered as a, um, you know, better solution to a bigger problem? I'm comfortable with either. Um, it's it's just a matter of you know, which one comes first or come comes out of that that equation or that formula I'm trying to put together. One approach shared by both of your practices is a reliance on materials to convey meaning. Can I ask you both to share an example of a particularly meaningful material that you've incorporated into your paintings? For me, I'll, I'll say material is huge. I think material is often where my work starts. Uh, I, I am a painter, but I would say in a lot of respects, my work always starts with the process of collecting things that have no immediate relationship to making a painting such as a textile that has some kind of previous history of use. It perhaps has staining or tears or things that sort of uh, record a previous life. Um, so for me, material is always the starting point. It, it always grounds the work and, and the imagery that comes about always comes directly from whatever material I'm using. I guess I'm materialist as well. I feel like I'm constantly trying to explore new materials or I guess new pigments to to play with. Um, or I guess, yeah, new ways of applying pigments. Now in my current work, um, my interest in, I guess, astrology or astrophysics or geology and mineralogy and the history of pigment and the history of man um, is kind of all being formulated into um, this materials that I'm using, which are actually uh, gemstones. Uh, I guess one example is that um, in, in the painting that's in the show, um, there's actually uh, raw uh, lapis lazuli um, embedded in the painting, um, which is actually one of the first uh, minerals that man used, uh, crushed up to turn into pigment, which we know now as ultramarine blue. For me, it just makes it all very dense and and full and and rich and that um that even even you know the history or even that's the time it takes for lapis to be formed within the surface of the earth is is also very fascinating to me um you know i, f I feel like people walk down the street or we, you know we're out in nature and we just see rocks and we just we kick them, we throw them, you know, when we're kids, we pick them up, we skip them across the pond. But um, if you think about the time that it took to make that stone or that that mineral, um, it's probably like hundreds, if not thousands of years old. Um, you know, I mean, the rock that we're standing on that we call home is hundreds of millions of years old. And that's just fascinating to me. 
Can I respond to something in that? That it made me think a lot about, and I, I think especially in your work, um, in your work, Aldrin, seeing it, that it's this idea that blue has all of these, blue in the form of oil paint is so different than blue in the form of, of a stone is so different than blue in the form of um, house paint. And, mm -hmm. that, and that all of these kind of different um, points of, points of development that that the color arrives at, you know, like house paint has a different viscosity. It has a different luminosity. It it's opaque. It, it, mm -hmm. and, and that that isn't something that, um, that has meaning in it that, you know, that like, the, and also that your work also can't really be photographed and reflect the full breadth of what it is because there is a kind of built-in sheen to it, yeah. right? And there's there's a, a material that like when it's photographed, you just don't get that kind of like glistening quality. Um, yeah, there. I think it, it, the paintings, yeah, I, I kind of like that they're hard to photograph. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I feel like nowadays people are so used to seeing um, paintings or images on their on you know digitally on their phone on their computer right. and for me I'm I guess I'm kind of analog with it like you know I'm I like seeing paintings in person I I go to the MoMA you know every Monday just to sit in front of the Pollock and and Newman and to just look because I feel like there's more information there and the uh this you know the physical uh, uh marks um than I'd ever get from looking at an image. So I feel like I kind of really load that in on my paintings that I'm I'm kind of really into the the physicality of a painting that this is a thing, it's here, it's it's made by man. And um, you know, it it needs to be seen in person. I think anyone who's been to the Pantheon in Rome or seen the Eiffel Tower in Paris, you know, there's certain, seeing a postcard of the Eiffel Tower or the Empire State Building, or even New York City, uh, we just say Chinatown. Seeing a postcard of Chinatown is much different than standing on Mott Street and Canal. You know what I mean? Like there's a smell, there's a sensation that you're getting, there's noises. It's And I feel like kind of, um, paintings have that same you know, um, attribute, you know, they, they, they need to be seen in person. They need to be felt or touched, you know, and, and, and experienced. And, um, so I think that's something with my work that I really try to, I, I almost, I feel like I almost do it on purpose, to be honest. In the back totally. of my Yeah. It's, I think it's a strategy. I mean, I feel the same way about it. And, and, you know, you mentioned all these other senses when it comes to a place, but I think with painting, it's, for me, it's, it's something having to do with scale mm -hmm. and having to do with mm -hmm. an awareness of how big my body is in relationship to this thing before me. And I think of scale just as much of a formal tool as I do color. And that is why it's so important to me that my work is seen in person because scale is an arbitrary factor when it's reproduced on a screen. And it often ends up becoming dictated by the architecture of the screen, right? So you see it on a phone and it's two inches, you see it on a computer mm -hmm. screen and it becomes this kind of horizontal mm -hmm. um, thing. And scale, I have always thought of as one of the most integral things that 
creates meaning in how work is experienced. And I think similarly, you mentioned the Pantheon, that has a lot to do with my relationship to painting in the context of architectural space. And historically, painting existing in sites, spiritual and religious sites where the placement of a painting above one's head was embedded in the meaning and embedded in the way the artist actually created the work with regard to perspective, for instance. Um, and I think a lot of work has been removed from that embeddedness in a site now that we can sort of see paintings or art anywhere, right? We can see it on our phone as we move from place to place. Um, and there's a huge gap that happens when, when work is removed from its original site. You both mentioned the resistance to photographic duplication and dissemination as a strategy. And I, I'm totally with you there. It's nearly impossible to see like the work of Robert Ryman or Eve Klein in reproduction. Um, but especially today in the midst of COVID, that's not always an option I would think for contemporary painters. And I know that you both do contend with the processes of digitalization and virtualization and algorithmic serialization that define our relationship to the visual online. Um, so given that necessity, how do you factor the inevitable internetification of your paintings into the process of their making? Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying um, I have never had an Instagram account for the very reason that we're talking about, uh, that scale is so important to me and I never wanted my work to be reduced to the size of a screen, a phone screen specifically. Um, and the current, I have a, a show up right now that uh, all it consists of entirely two inch by two inch paintings, which I made site specifically for the phone screen, knowing that one of the sites that the work would be experienced in would be Instagram, and one of the sites would be the physical space of the gallery. So in my sort of resistance to the digitization of my work, I made work that was almost meant to be digitized. Um, so in a way, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of giving into this trend, but at the same time critiquing it by using its own form as a, as a kind of language. And part of my hope is that there is a really distinct moment where someone sees it in person and realizes that two inches is really, really small. And you never realize that when it's on your phone because that's sort of the given, right? It's this given architecture that we take for granted or that we don't think about being being made really, you know? Um, and the work is still, you know, I think on Instagram, it looks a certain way and it, it, it kind of looks good, quote unquote, you might say, but it's so far from what the work really is, but it is a way that I know the world will experience it. And I'm kind of playing with that by saying, okay, I'll, I will play this game, but I will play it on sort of my own terms. And it's the first time I think I've made something that is, uh, that this directly engages with that kind of um, digital space and kind of, again, gives into it, but at the same time sort of holds its ground as something different from it. Uh, Julie, I, I love that um, you're making 
you or you made like two inch paintings specifically for people <laughs> to uh, photograph on on Instagram, and so that they, they kind of realize like you know this is what you're trying to d- diminish my work to. So right. I'm gonna just give it to you. Right. And, <laughs> and this is how ridiculous it is. It is so ridiculous. <laughs> This is where we've gotten to. This is where we got. It's so true. It's so true. Um, yeah, I feel like uh, I do have an Instagram account, and um, I, I feel like I, I use, you know, images of my work. I I used to get really annoyed. Um, maybe about three years ago, I would just be, you know, photographers would come over and, you know, document my work and they send me these images to prove. And I would, I, there were times where I would just really just get frustrated and I'm like, oh, but, but you're missing it. You know, you're not getting this tone. You're not getting that tone because I, I work a lot with iridescent pigments. So depending on the conditions of the light and where the viewer is standing in front of the work, the color shift slightly. So um, for for me, that is all a part of experiencing the work. And, you know, Julie mentioned earlier that scale plays a huge factor in how paintings are experienced. And I I think that um, that, that's totally true, uh, as well as the, you know, the the atmosphere that's rendered, the way it's lit, the way the colors are kind of, you know, coming together within your own eyes, you know, that that mixture of light in the back of your retinas um, is different than what it is when you're staring at a, 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 a computer screen or a cell phone. Um, so, um, but, you know, I, I, I always try to encourage people, you know, they go to the museums, go to the galleries, actually look at the work in person. Can I ask you something? And I'm curious, because you talked so much about being frustrated with photographers taking these pictures of your work. Have you ever, or do you ever take photos of the work from angles that purposefully don't allow one to think that they saw the work, you know? So you take it from the side and then you have this light reflecting off or you see the mm-hmm. edge of the canvas, or you see the kind of, um, you know, the, the, the stone coming off, um, which is in a way thinking about painting closer to sculpture where that's inherent in one's understanding of a photograph. Everyone seems to know that a sculpture photographed is different than it is in person, but somehow yeah. with painters, people are like, oh no, they're the same thing. Yeah. And painting is a flat medium. And so it is especially susceptible to this flattening that happens on the screen. Um, and I almost wish that we should, that we would treat painting more like sculpture and just say, no, you know, like, here's an angle of it, and right. you got to see it again, or you got to yeah. take a video of it yeah. as you walk by. Well, I remember sitting in Art History 101, and, um, you know, they put up the slides of, you know, uh, Pollock number one, or Barnett Newman, or even um, Woman in the Hat, Matisse, and, you know, you, you see all these things, and you're just looking at a slide projection in class, so, you know, the, the, the scale... Yeah. And and resolution, you know what I mean? D- depending on what school you went to, how good you know those projectors were, um, says a lot. You know, like when I when I was in San Francisco and I saw a woman in hat by Matisse, I was like, oh my god! Like this is much. There's much more going on than I've ever seen in this you know image in Gardner art through the ages. 
Yeah. You know, it's like it's 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 almost not even fair. Yeah. Um. To to talk about art in this way, I I encourage any art history professor, um, after we're back to some new sense of normalcy to make sure that you take your class to an art gallery or art museum to actually see art in person rather than just giving them a PowerPoint slide presentation because it does so much more uh, for the students to actually see work um, um, in, in person. And uh, a few professors did that for me when I was an undergrad. And I think it just got me even more hooked on art um, now. I don't know if it would have been the same if I had just was looking at images on, on a slide projector. Yeah, my version of that like shock moment was when I first saw Ava Hesse's hang up, mm -hmm. which is just so much bigger than I ever imagined. Right. And it was just shocking. And this was recent. This was like two years ago. Yeah. And I wasn't in a, I just, <laughs> I was even surprised to see it. I was like, I had no idea this was even here. Right. So. Right. It is amazing the way that that painting sculpture just consumes space and you understand why they position it against the window in Chicago because it can't play with anything, right? <laughs> it devours. Right. Um, picking up on your last question, Julia, how do you think about the relationship of your work to the sculptural and the architectural generally? Uh, it, I, they're, they're completely related. Um, I would say, Two to three years ago is the first time I I really started bringing paintings off the wall. Uh, I was making these freestanding double-sided paintings that were uh, made with, in some cases, transparent and in others, translucent material. I was using spandex stretched on these frames that when they stretched really, really tightly, they became these translucent screens, literally. and sort of figuratively. Um, and I was also using uh, clear glass embedded within these sort of, <clears throat> um, these hanging screens. And the clear glass was a way to, again, literally allow for transparency in the work. I mean, I think I want to have my cake and eat it too. Like I want the paint to be an image and I also want the painting to be an object. Um, and I think, again, that comes from just my deep, uh, a lot of time that I spent looking at um, paintings that were made for specific architectures, the history of fresco being this incredible example of the imageness of the painting and then the objectness of the painting. And neither of those things were prioritized over the other. They felt like they were both important in how the artist created the work. And I, I, I want that now. <laughs> Alderaz, you spoke about the way that your, function, your paintings function in relief and how they demand to be seen from multiple perspectives too. Um, but your shaped canvases also interact in interesting ways with their architectural containers. Um, how do you think about hanging your work in relationship to the architecture in which it's shown? My my shape paintings, um, the the Moonwalkers, um, that that really came from uh, I guess a, a, a fascination for the history of shape paintings and abstraction, um, but then also it, it kind of happened. 
just by chance. I was was working on a body of work where I was kind of making these motif paintings that were kind of like Tetris-like shape uh, paintings from a long gallery from 2017. And I kind of came, I, I got this new studio here in the Bronx and it was a huge open space. And I wanted to make a much larger version of that painting um, of like a Tetris-like shape painting. And I, I kind of put some canvases together and uh you know it was like 48 by 48 square um uh feet uh, uh panels and kind of mended them together on the floor when i sat it up it was it was on this angle it was nine feet high and my ceilings only 10 feet high so there was no way it was going to kick up on the wall uh the way i intended it and i kind of stepped back and saw this painting, it was really just smitten by it and was really just, um, you know, mesmerized by it. I, I, I never seen a shape like that before or a painting like that before. You know, I, I really tried hard to think. I, I kind of just went with it. You know, it was, it wasn't really um, something that I really set out or, or intended to do. Um, and, but it, it felt new and fresh to me and it felt like something that I wanted to get to understand. So I kept it and I kept, you know, working it and reworking it and eventually, you know, have having, you know, panels made specifically to rest on the wall this way. And, you know, it's funny because people come to me and they're like, oh, you know, Altrance, what if you turned it this way or turned it that way? Uh, you know, and I'm like, no, no, it's, it's good. You know, let's 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 leave it how it is. Um, you know, and um, but it, there, there, you know, there's something, I don't know, something new and refreshing about it. You know, and and now it's kind of becoming a little bit of uh, you know a, a signature style for me. But you know, I I kind of think of the artists like in the show like Gerhard Rector or you know Helen, Helen Frankenthaler. I feel like I I'm like sitting at the table now and having a conversation with them uh, about this. And it, 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 feels, it feels good, it, it feels earnest. And um, I'm actually, you know, looking to, you know, uh, uh, develop and find new shapes that, that I care, or, you know, create new spaceships that I can kind of conjure and see where they take me as well. That's great. Your works in very different ways present a notion of the handmade Alterance, many of your paintings recall the process of hand-placing tesserae in a mosaic. Julia, your paintings often exhibit the results of a manual process, whether that be pulping or stretching or stitching, that all carry a handmade quality. We talked about digitization and virtualization, but what for you guys is the significance of the artist's hand in 2021? Everything. <laughs> I mean, gosh, the hand... I hope the same way that painting never dies, the hand never dies. I mean, it's really important to me that that is something that happens by my own application. And I think part of that is that uh, there's always the potential for error and for accident. And a lot of my best moments, I think, come from noticing the accident and going with it and saying, oh, like that's more interesting than what I thought I was doing, right? And if you're not there to catch the accident because you didn't make it, then that potential is gone. And so 
in a, in a lot of ways, I think being a painter is, is about noticing things, not even acting on them right away, but just noticing that they happened and living with them and looking at them and letting time do its work. And then eventually catching them like you're the sieve and some things come through the, the sieve, some things pass through the sieve and other things stick in the sieve. And then you as the artist are kind of picking through the pebbles that have stuck through the sieve, stuck in the sieve. And for me, that is, that is what the process of the hand is. It's like your decision to pick through the pebbles of, of, uh, of a process and decide what you are going to go with and turn into something else. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. You got to love human error. I feel like it was probably human error why most of us are here, you know? <laughs> so I, I think that some people who want like those perfect paintings or images or, you know, there's certain artists who really, um, like the digital age and are, you know, printing images down and, and, and that's okay. That's their thing. I think, you know, me personally, I, I relate more to the human touch and, and, you know, I, I like the errors. I like the mistakes, you know, I think it's one of the reasons I like jazz music, you know, it's like, they're, they're kind of just throwing notes in there, but you know, if you ever talk to a musician or actually went and saw her jazz um, music that they know all the scales out there. They probably know hundreds, hundreds of scales and are kind of mixing it all together in a way that's very humane. And they're thinking why they're, do it, why they're doing it. So I think when, when, sometimes when I look at my own paintings, I look at other people's paintings, I like watching the thinking process happening and, and being recorded in the object that they're made that they made. So it's, um, it, it's a very unique thing. I think it's a very human thing to, to appreciate, you know, the, the handmade over the machine made. I want to ask you both about the politics of abstraction and your abstractions in particular. Abstraction in many ways is a defining feature of our society. The 2008 financial crisis, for example, was predicated on the process of turning tangible assets into derivatives, which is a process of abstraction. And in a very different but equally important manner, our discourse around identity has witnessed the abstraction of individual identity from the physical body towards notions of identification and fluidity, notions that rely on an understanding of identity as a set of constructs and ideas or abstractions. How does your process of painterly abstraction relate or intervene in the forms of social, economic, and political abstraction that shape the way we live? Well, um, I felt like when when I started researching the history of monochromatic painting, um, the one of the first images I came across, or I guess one of the earliest images of, or is deemed to be one of the first abstract paintings, uh, is the image by Paul Belode uh, from the 19th century, of, uh, which is a black square framed, with a caption underneath in French, uh, Negroes fighting in a tunnel at night. And I felt like, you know, I already knew that uh, uh, politics was already infused in art. You know, I feel like it's already a very uh, radical or political statement to even just be an artist in society. 
Um, but there was something about, especially me being a person of color, a black man, that uh, the you know, I, I was kind of born into a society where politics or, or social politics was already kind of uh, bedded against me. And seeing it being kind of reinforced or um, elaborated in uh, very subtle notions of color and abstraction, I started to kind of, I, I thought to myself as, as a huge fan of abstract painting, this is something I would like to take on and, and kind of challenge for myself. So I think I started really thinking about the ways and a history in which color has been used and defined within society, um, especially in its relationship to race, you know, and, and a Jim Crow era here in America of, you know, blacks and whites and everyone in between that this uh, association with color and identity um, has been really, you know, an oppressive, you know, uh, a color has been weaponized or radicalized by human beings. And I feel like within my process, I, of, of abstract painting, I kind of want to emancipate or liberate color for myself. Um, you know, I feel like there's so many associations or ways in which one can, can think about the color black or the color blue or the color red. Um, you know, I, I feel like in, in my work, I kind of wanted to consider all those things, but then hopefully through the process of painting, um, almost uh, e erase or uh, expand the notion or the universe or definitions of those uh, terms e even further to, to really stretch them. So I, I feel like uh, abstraction for me has really uh, allowed um, my mind to kind of let go or wander or, or de decompose or you know, de-stress these things that are kind of like imposed upon my, my consciousness um, e either through social politics or, or, or um, you know, other, other things that are kind of, you know, uh, uh, affecting me. I think abstraction does something that poetry does in the way that it gives us things we can recognize, i.e. words, and it orients them in such a way that you end up with a taste, but it doesn't define itself. You know, when you read a poem, I think the best poems leave you with something that is more open than closed. And that's not to say that they aren't direct or that they, they skirt away from hard issues. It's to say that they give you enough but they don't tell you what you should believe necessarily. They, they leave you with a kind of question mark. They open some kind of door that you can walk through or you can not walk through, or you can look at, you can engage with. And for me, abstraction doesn't come from nowhere. Abstraction comes from everything in the world. I, I think that my forms come from things that I have seen or things that I have somehow absorbed over the course of my existence, but they don't 
need to end there. They possibly start there in a way that may or may not be relevant to my viewers, but they end somewhere else. And abstraction is actually very, I don't want to say it's literal, but it is, it, it is what it is. It's a very, in a way for me, very honest form of depositing a mark because it doesn't aspire to be something else. It doesn't say this is going to be a likeness of something else. And in that, it is exactly what it is. And it comes from someplace else and it's associative and it's evocative and it can conjure up all kinds of meaning for whoever is seeing it, but it doesn't demand to be read in a certain way. Selfishly, while I have two painters as a captive audience, who are you guys looking at? Where do you see the most exciting work around being made? Well, I, I will just say one thing. I The last show that I saw that's like really strongly in my memory was the Donald Judge show at MoMA. And I think, well, first of all, I should say I saw it in a relatively empty gallery, which is like unheard of. You know, if you had seen that in like normal times, you would have basically been experiencing 50% people and then like 20% art. And then, so it was like, I got to be in a huge room with these objects that you could actually see your own reflection in. You could see the work reflecting in the work itself, the surfaces. And I think that uh, his sort of early dance with painting and then sort of departure into the world of, of, uh, of sculpture is something I really, I really relate to. But I think actually that some of the best work that I'm, or like the most exciting work is like just my friend's studios and like seeing it being made and seeing the stuff that they wouldn't necessarily, you know, ever exhibit, but that they're in the process of making. Um, and I miss doing studio visits. I feel like that's been really hard during the pandemic. And the few in-person studio visits I've had have just given me a lot of energy. Well, one of the, I think, best shows that I've seen that really inspired me was Howardina Pendo at the shed right now. Um, Firewater Rope, I believe it's called, um, which is really a great show. I think for me, she's she's really doing a lot materially. You know, she she's pushing herself even as as an artist. Um, I don't like late late career, but I'm gonna say mid career for Howardina. Even as as an artist, mid career is Howardina. Um, it's it's really refreshing to see her. Uh, taking risk as as she is still still doing it you know and and I I love seeing artists even uh, the Sam Gilliam show mm. uh, at Pace yeah. was like my God it's like um, you know uh, uh, seeing I guess artists who are who have been working for a while um, still taking uh, you know a lot of risk in her work and still trying to explore still. Uh, uh, searching is something that I'm really excited about and um, it gives me a lot of hope and um, admiration to just go in my studio and, and to keep keep playing, keep exploring. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I, I wish I, you know, because of COVID, I haven't been doing a lot of studio visits. Um, I kind of just keep up with what's going on, you know, uh, around town via trying to see shows. But um, yeah, I think those two shows uh, really did it for me. 
um, this past fall and, and winter. Um, and, and then also, I guess, I mean, it's probably shameless to say or very much a, of an artist of me, but I, I'm really excited what's going on in my studio. <laughs> I, like, I, I go to my studio and I'm like, oh, this is so exciting. Like, you know, I, and I, I don't, I think it's okay if you're an artist to have that feeling or vibe, you know what I mean? Like, I think we all should be excited to just wake up and just can't wait to get in our studios. And I, I sometimes I feel a little guilty when like I'm on the phone with a friend or 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 my mom, and I'm like, "Mom, I gotta go." You know, like someone's on the other line. No one's really on the other line. I just want to like get to my paintings. And um, uh, but you know, I'm 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 just that engaged in a studio. The paintings are on the other line. Yeah, the paintings, paintings are on the other line, mom. Like I got. <laughs> I'm caught up on the family gossip. Now let me, <laughs> yeah. let me, let me, you know, let me, let me get to work. But um, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I hope every artist, you know, has that. If if you don't have it, you should, you should strive for that. You know, you should, you should want to wake up and just run, want to run to the studio, or you know, get so late that you, you know, you, you're not, you, you don't want to leave. You know, um, uh, and I think that that's just. You know, I, I guess a, a part of having a good work ethic and you know making sure that you're you're feeding your studio practice mentally um, as much as you're kind of you know feeding other aspects in your in your life. Um, and yeah, like you know, I feel like me and Julie are talking about you know going out and, and seeing shows and 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 having that experience and bringing little tidbits you know back back to the studio, back to the work, and seeing if it works or doesn't work. And yeah. I think the painting's calling is a great place to bring this to an end. So, uh, <laughs> I'll do around some Let's videos. do a Thank studio you, visit. <laughs> yeah, that, Julie, anytime. Yeah. Uh, Sam, uh, likewise, you know, you guys are more than welcome to come by. Yeah. Okay. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been great thank to talk. You. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Perspectives, a podcast from Zeit Contemporary Art. I'm your host, Samuel Shapiro. <laughs>